one person. One person who's on staff. Um, <laughs> appreciate you. I don't know if that was clapping for Dan leaving or clapping for me arriving. I don't know, but uh, thanks, man. Hey, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know who, who it is. I just get a sense as Dan was sh- sharing in that moment. First off, isn't he just such a good pastor? Man, alive. Thank you, my friend. Um, I, I don't know who this is for, but I just get a sense that there may be. I'm, I'm not suggesting I know, but there may be one of you who the only reason God brought you this morning is because he wanted you to hear what Dan had to say about gratitude. And um, I would suggest to you that if that's the case, that maybe over the next 30 minutes as I yammer on about whatever I'm going to talk about, I think it'll be helpful, but um, whatever I'm going to say, maybe your best assignment would be to zone me out. Um, You can listen to the recording later if you care. And to just pull out your notes app in your phone or if you're an Android user, get a rock and etch it into that rock. Um, and just take these 30 minutes to talk about the gratitude um, that God is stirring in you. So I, that may be your assignment for the day. I don't, again, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily the case, but just want to offer that to you. That may be uh, your, your best investment into your in, internal world today. Um, thanks, Dan, for that. Um, for those who want to follow along um, with what I, I think God wants me to say today, um, turn in your Bibles or grab that QR code Dan mentioned, uh, James chapter 2, um, digital program is there. And we dive in this week to part two of a six-part series, working through this letter uh, called James from the Brother of Jesus. Maybe the most recognizable couple of chapters in all of the Bible. We, we all kind of seem to have some awareness of some of these words in James. They get thrown around. They, they find themselves on bumper stickers. Um, they, they find themselves mailed and emailed to us occasionally. But I would suggest to you that maybe we have not captured the full understanding. And uh, there may be a bit more of that full understanding God would have for us to grab today. I'm going to begin in chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, James writes, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Verse 17, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith and other people have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have, you say you have faith for You believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Pray with me, would you? Jesus, for all that you want to reveal to us in these moments about you and about your goodness, and about your enduring love. Would you, through the power of your spirit, open our ears 
Would you find us to be uh, clay pots that are willing and able to be maneuvered and shaped and changed? Teach us your way, O Lord, that we might walk in your truth. Amen. I want you to take your mind back to 1986. I get it. I'm really, really old. Really, really old. So, for those of you who were not yet alive in 1986, there's a few of us twitching, uh, you can think back to 2010. The same story, The Karate Kid. Anybody? Anybody remember The Karate Kid? Now, I'm not going to get into a whole argument as to which one's better, older one or newer one. They're both basically the the same story. But the, The Karate Kid, in the movie The Karate Kid, Daniel, who's known as Daniel's son, is in a bit of a losing battle with some bullies who kind of bring to some climax when they beat him up and trash his bike. And now, listen, my love affair and my um, enduring um, joy around the bicycle, this strikes me really, really difficultly because let me just explain the bike that they banged up, which is not really important to the story at all, but it's important to me and my microphone has batteries and I'm going to use them. It was a mongoose 24, all right? This was a revolutionary bike during that time. And the fact that Daniel was rolling around on this mongoose, first of all, a single mom of which I had, there's no way she was buying him that bike. So already the story makes no sense, but uh, this was the bike he had. And Mr. Miyagi finds the bike beat up after he watches Daniel's son get roughed up by the, by the, the dirt bags uh, who bullied him. And Mr. Miyagi fixes up the bike. But I digress, right? What a bike. I'd love to find that one someday. I saw one on eBay this morning. I just thought I would look and I had time to kill. $2,200 for that bike. So I'll just be looking at the photo. Um, the bike? No, it wasn't the actual bike. Uh, just one of them. Boy, to find the actual bike. Anyway, I digress. Let's get back on track. Mr. Miyagi... Uh, sees Daniel in this really tough situation and invites to train him in karate. And he tells Daniel uh, some course of events. I haven't seen the movie in 25 years, but tells Daniel to come to his house. And and he comes to his house and turns up. And uh, you're probably at least familiar with the story, even if you haven't seen the movie. He shows up and in order to teach him karate, Mr. Miyagi uh, begins to teach him, I believe first was to paint the fence. And he paints the fence. And then next, I think, second thing was wax on, wax off. He waxed all of Mr. Miyagi's old vintage cars. And, and then there was sanding the deck. And I think there might have even been one more that I forget about. But all of this kind of culminates. And Daniel finally loses his temper and says, listen, I came to learn how to do karate so I can beat up the bullies. And all you're doing is using me as a slave. And then this like, amazing moment that happens. And I remember as clear as day the first time I saw it because out of nowhere, Mr. Miyagi kind of grabs Daniel's attention and says, paint the fence, I think it was. And he punches at Daniel and Daniel paints the fence and wipes away his punch. And then he says, wax on. And he does some other move. And Daniel in this moment and those of us watching the movie realize in this moment that all along, Daniel has not been learning how to wax a car or paint a fence or sand a deck solely. He's learning also how to perform these karate moves that were the thing he came to learn. 
And so we arrive back at James chapter two going, how in the world does that relate? Well, I think in some sense, James is trying to teach us the same thing about following Jesus, maybe from the inside out rather the outside in that Mr. Miyagi used. As if to say, and then I'll get off the analogy before it fails us completely, that karate and knowing all the karate moves in the world is totally worthless if you never paint another's fence or wax their car or sand their deck. And of course, we realize, as we do with all Disney films, uh, or at least most, that as the movie goes on, there's a deeper learning happening. There's a deeper connection happening between this elderly man and this young, insecure kid. And there's also something richly theological going on in James chapter 2 that can easily be missed amidst all of the here's the stuff you ought to be doing that you're not. So I don't know about you, uh, but it's easy for me to read James chapter 2 and just read into it and project my own shame on it, what a lousy, crummy Christian I am, and why would I even want to serve that kind of God? But you see, James, in this moment, among other things, there's a bunch of stuff he's doing here, but among other things, James is not just reminding us of the value of living out this faith that is internalized. He's taking us back to Jesus. And he's giving us just a, a quick snapshot of the teachings of Jesus as, as a bit of a bookmark or a callback or a footnote, if you will. And for that, go with me to Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. This is Jesus teaching. He's in the middle of a sermon. So we're kind of picking it up midstream. Um, so there, you know, we'll lose a little in translation here. But here are Jesus' words in Matthew 25. He says, But when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he'll separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Is anybody else singing the song in their head? Am I? Okay. Anybody? Okay, great. I'm not the only 40 something in the room, right? There was a song, a Christian song, like a hundred years ago. Uh, you can look it up, Sheep and the Goats. It's pretty theatrical, right? Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, sorry. Verse 37, and then uh, these righteous ones will reply after that big long list of all the things they did. Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. 
And then he flips the table. For the sake of time, I won't read it all, but he flips the table and essentially says, and now there are those who didn't and didn't and didn't and didn't. And they'll reply, Lord, the same thing. When did we see you hungry and not feed you? When did we see you naked and not clothe you? And and he'll answer in verse 45, I tell you the truth, when you refused to help the least of my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they'll go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. Now, now again, it's important that we, as best we know how, and with as much earnestness as we can muster, when we approach the scriptures, we try as best we can to remove our 21st century eyes, and we try to read this with first century eyes and apply it with 21st century living. So we have to recognize that as James writes these words, give or take 10, maybe 14 years, after the death and resurrection of Christ. So it's not been that long. When he pens these words, everybody in the area would know he's referencing back to that teaching in Matthew 25. They just would have known. Like, like it was not that big of an area. We're talking less people living in that town likely than what live in Folsom. And you can imagine if somebody came in and said things as incendiary as do or don't do, they would have remembered. So James is giving them a bit of a shorthand and he's reminding them of these teachings of Jesus. And obviously it's a pretty straightforward message here from Jesus. Like James 2, it would be easy to boil all of this down to our faith amounts to essentially what we do. And in some weird sense, if we read into it just slightly, the doing is linking these words likely to some triggers for those original readers, but certainly for us. Jesus says that those who refuse to help will go away into eternal punishment. And we're right back to a discussion that Jesus had with the rich young ruler, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And isn't this the question we've all been asking for eons, even if we ask it in very nuanced ways? If there is a God out there, if he is actually good, what must I do to get my way to him, to close the chasm that separates us, to bridge the gap, to open my ears? And as we jump back to James chapter two, he uncovers a similar trigger point in verse 17, the very beginning of verse 17, when he says, see, you see, faith by itself isn't enough. I don't know what you're thinking, but I don't need one more place in my life that tells me I'm not enough. Anybody else feel that way? Anybody else feel that way? once again faced in that moment with the temptation to simply conclude what our good friend Kent Carlson has theologically deemed this really important theological word, not enoughness, right? This sort of measure that we all live with this layer of not enoughness. If you're married, you feel it in your marriage. If you're employed, you feel it at work. If you're 
in a friendship. You feel it in a friendship. You, you feel the sense of failure. You feel the sense of they want more from me. They need more from me. And I just am not enough. But good news is coming, friends. Because there's more going on here. In Alan Hirsch's uh, just beautiful book called The Forgotten Ways, he reminds us of kind of the rabbinic way of learning, which he would deem or he would language it in this way that you live your way into a new way of thinking. You act your way into a new way of thinking. And in sort of our Western society, especially for those of us who did the track of, of university and grad school and fellowships after that, we, we, we've often been trained to see the world be, you learn and you learn and you learn and you learn. And then once you've learned enough about a subject, then you're ready to go practice the subject. And it's not to say learning is not hugely important. Of course it is. Uh, there's probably more going on in college than learning the content that you need to learn. It's probably learning how to learn and learning how to answer questions and, and all those things. It's another conversation for another day to some extent. But this reality of the rabbinic way was Jesus invites his disciples to come follow him and he teaches them along the way. He sends them out to heal when they don't really know quite how to heal. And then they come back and they go, well, we were able to heal everything but this one thing. And he goes, oh yeah, well, that one you can only heal in prayer. <laughs> right, so there's just this idea of following the Jesus way is a lifestyle that we're living and we're learning along the way. Again, this is not in juxtaposition to learning. It's not, well, I don't believe in learning. I believe in acting. Well, I believe in learning. That's exactly what James is getting at here. He's saying these two things go together. You, they're inextricably connected. I want to remind us of two keys as it relates to our faith today. They're not the only keys, but two keys in this faith and deeds sort of territory. And the first is that how we live is rewiring what we believe. How we live our lives is fundamentally rewiring what we believe. And this is the central problem at play when we approach our politics or when we approach our finances or when we approach a social issue and we say, my faith is over here, but my politics are a separate thing. My belief about a social issue is separate from my faith. It just doesn't work that way. We, we are not these compartmentalized humans. We're just not as good at it as we think that we are. So the way we vote and the things we buy and the rights that we defend, all of these are doing more than simply reflecting what we already believe. They are actually rewiring what we believe which is to say there are times we walk in a way that we don't yet fully comprehend or believe because we've chosen to put our confidence in that way. I've told you the story ad nauseum of standing over that crib of Sophie at 18 months old who was dying before our eyes and had withered down to like seven and a half pounds at 18 months old. 
And we had prayed and we had prayed and we had prayed and we had prayed and we got nowhere. And so I called my old friends at Bethel. I didn't know what else to do. And I called my youth pastor buddy at Bethel. I said, hey, you got to get me some people down here who know how to pray better for healing than me. You, I got to bring them somewhere. They got to heal my daughter. And in just his wonderful, gracious way, he said, ah, you got the same Holy Spirit I do. Just keep praying. What oil on my soul. I'll tell you, in that moment, I didn't believe God could heal anymore. I, I wasn't even sure what I believed about God's healing. But I prayed like he could because I didn't know what else to do. How we live rewires what we believe. And I don't want to pick on any particular issue. I bet you're already irritated with me a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to trust that that thing that has come to your mind, that thing you're defending, that position that you have taken, that you're thinking about right now, that's the very area the Holy Spirit wants to work in you. Right there. Because all of these do more than reflect. And so is the task to simply feed everyone or give clothes to everyone? After all, that's the demonstration that James suggests. But, but wait, if we go back to Matthew 25, then Matthew... And the teaching of Jesus adds a whole bunch more to that list. Oh, shoot, now I, gotta, I can't just feed everybody. I can't just clothe them all. I, I've got to go visit the prison. And I've got I've to do this. And I've got I've to do all these other things. I've got to care for the sick. I've got to invite strangers into my home. I don't want strangers in my home. That's my paradise, right? I don't know what your thing is. I guess the short answer is kind of, um, but maybe the more accurate answer is that what James is reflecting back on in the teachings of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, is a way deeper issue than simply, here are the things that we will do to rewire our beliefs. He's saying all of this reflects the goodness of God. In the beginning, God creates. And at every stage of creation, God ends that stage by saying, and it is good. And then he makes you and me. And what does he say about us? Exceedingly good. There's a goodness in God. There's a, a goodness in our imago Dei, in the, the image of God that lives in us and in all of creation. It bears the image of God. And so when we live our lives, our lives are designed to bear witness to the image of God, to his goodness. It's not merely about, well, this is the stuff I got to do to prove that I believe in Jesus. It's, this is my joy to bear witness to the good image of God. James asks in verse 16, of a faith that does nothing for the need of a brother or sister. And I think this is important because Jesus uses the same language in Matthew 25, and James uses it again in James chapter 2. He says, brother or sister. And this is just an aside. This is just your friend Stu talking. Do with this what you want. I, I don't know how much water it holds. But I think this brother and sister stuff's important. Because for me, I'll be straight with you. If the Spirit is laying it on my heart to help somebody in need... 
I am so happy, and it's a good thing, but I'm so happy to sign up and bring gifts to a family um, in the community during the Christmas tree thing. I'm actually really okay with buying a burger for a woman or man holding a sign on the street corner. I, I don't, don't send me an email, um, please. I just, like, it's just that, I'm fine with that. That's great. You know where it's tough for me? Is a brother or sister. It's a different layer, guys. It's a different layer of help to come to a brother or sister, like, and sometimes literally your brother or your sister, and say, hey, like, it seems like you have need. Can I step in? There's a humility to that. There's a, we've got to deal with our own powering over tendencies. We've got to attend to our need to be loved or to create safe environment. We, we've got to attend to all of our own junk in that that you don't probably have to attend to when you buy a burger for somebody on a corner. Again, don't hear me say don't buy a burger or do buy a burger. I just use that as an analogy to help us understand that this brother-sister thing may actually be really important. That how we live is actually rewiring what we believe. And at the risk of beating the horse completely dead, uh, let's do a quick little exercise, um, if you'll play along. Um, I want you to look around the room really quick. And I want you to look at everything that is gray. I want you to try and take like, you know, kind of survivor style. Take a quick or big brother, wherever they do this game. Look around the room, everything that's gray, okay? Now close your eyes, memorize the things. Eyes closed, memorize the things that were gray. Okay, you got them? Okay, now open your eyes. Now what's gray? Just start shouting it out. Chairs. Yep, yep, all that, right? Yep, screen, yep, all that stuff, right? Okay, now close your eyes again. What was green? What else was green? Your eyes are closed, right? See, here's the point. The point is where, where we place our focus is what we will see. Do you want to be angry and have a vision of this world as it's all going to hell in a handbasket, just watch cable news. Pick your outlet. I'm not picking on anyone. They're all garbage. If, if that's what you want to stir in your heart, just this sense of, ah, it's all going to heck, just watch cable news. That's like, that's sort of what they deal in. Fear, loathing, <laughs> discontentment. You want to wake up in the morning and walk through your day and say, Jesus is alive and he is restoring everything. Then fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And look for opportunities to serve the least of these. And you will see the goodness of God at work. See, this, this passage is not about proving that you believe something. This passage is not about earning your way to heaven. But, and bear in mind, like the gospel is opposed to earning, but it has never been opposed to effort. The, this working out of the gospel in us is demonstrating and reflecting and rewiring the goodness of God. How we live is rewiring what we believe. And we will be led to believe the things that we allow ourselves to see. All right, that horse is pretty well dead. Um, 
Let me uh, leave you this little section with, with a quick quote from a World War II French activist. Uh, I don't know if you know his name, but I, I bet you'll be familiar with the quote. The quote is, if you want to build a ship, don't summon people to buy wood, prepare tools, distribute jobs, and organize the work. Rather, teach people the yearning for the wide and boundless sea. But we could probably rewrite that with James in view. And that might actually be a really good spiritual exercise for us to, to hold this quote and the book of James open and rewrite this quote and see what God might do in our midst with it. I uh, have a home office at home where I spend most of my day um, on eight to 10 Zoom calls every day. Um, and uh, that's not awesome. Um, just want to offer you that. Uh, but in that office, uh, one of the things that I find um, helps me bear those you know, eight to 10 Zoom calls every day is art in my office. I am a creative at heart with no outlet. So I, I can't paint. I don't write music. Um, I don't write poetry. I just, I wasn't given any of the skills, but I just love it. Take me to an art gallery and I'll spend 10 hours just walking around an art gallery and you'll find me crying and I'll have no idea why. Um, Jen and I went to the Vatican this last year and walked through all the, if you've ever been there, uh, you know, everybody talks about Sistine Chapel, which was cool, I guess. But what was even cooler was the catacombs of art that you wound yourself through for hours before that. I'm just looking at the ages of art. And it was just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. So I've got this art on my walls. It's just posters that I put in frames, but I love them and they're my art. And as I sit on these blasted Zoom calls all day long, I look at this art. But I also have a deep love for never having holes in my wall. Anybody else? Any of you dads like this? Do not. My kids put thumbtacks in the walls and I want to take them to an orphanage. Um, the walls should be sort of pristine. And so what I've done, right, yeah. So what I've done is I've used these little 3M sticky Velcro-y things. You know the ones, right? Which are awesome right up until the moment they're not anymore. And about, yeah, and about every three months, I have another painting or another poster on my wall go smash. And one of them hit today at like 5.15 in the morning. And it happened so regularly for me that the minute I heard the crash, I went, oh yeah, it must be the one on the left because I haven't put a nail in the wall to hold the darn thing up. And so one by one, I keep going through when another one fails and I put a hole in the wall. Now I know what you're thinking. Stu, why don't you just hang them all on a nail? Why don't you come to my house and do it for me? All right? If you're so concerned about it. Here's the point. The weight of those paintings, need, they, they need something anchored to hold them up. And the weight of your life and the weight of these weighty things that we believe from Scripture will require more than Velcro to hold them to your heart. You will lose them. We will lose them. They've got to be anchored. There's just some things in life that you got to drill a hole in the wall and put an anchor in and a screw through it so that it will hold. And these are the realities of our faith. And part of the way we anchor our faith, James reminds us, is by the way that we live, the things that we intentionally do. I just don't think that our Christian beliefs and faith will stand the tests of life 
in this world that is so antithetical to the ways of Jesus if we're not anchored well. So, so not only is how we live rewiring what we believe, how we live is anchoring what we believe. It's this beautiful back and forth of what we believe is being anchored in by how we live. And we see this played out at the end of James chapter two, or at least this section of James chapter two, as he takes us to a couple of really beautiful examples I want to zip through quickly. He says, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. He goes on to say in verse 25, Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away on a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also is faith dead without good works. And so church, maybe one way to approach this today is to simply ask God, where do my beliefs need a push? See, we're Westerners, and we're, especially Americans, we're like, what do I got to do? What do I need to do? Which is like, not just unique to Westerners and Americans, but boy, have we gotten good at it. You know, because remember, the rich young ruler says, what do I need to do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe a better place to start for you and for me would be to say, God, what things do you want to help me believe about who you are? Remember the gentleman who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, but what? Help me with my unbelief. Do you lack belief in God's healing power? Maybe you need to start acting in healing power. Oh, that's scary. Do you lack belief that God actually loves everybody? Your ex? that criminal. Maybe you need to act as if God loves those people. Do you lack belief in God's goodness towards your family? And maybe Dan's exercise from earlier about gratitude, an an activity of gratitude would help. And I can feel what I suspect you feel even when we imagine those activities from afar. They're risky, They're scary. What happens if they fail us? What happens if I go away on spiritual retreat and spend all weekend long to hear God's voice and he still doesn't speak to me? What if, what if, what if? What if I pray for healing and it doesn't come? What if, what if, what if? I don't have any simple, perfect answers for any of that, but um, I will say that C.S. Lewis's words in Chronicles of Narnia have helped me greatly in this territory. When he talks about the lion, right? And he says, he's not safe, but he is good. Acting in faith will only deepen our faith. And a deep faith is the best of all possible lives. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, may you find our faith to be deep, to be wide, to be real, to be full of joy and fulfillment. 
And God, our prayer that you would find that is not simply so that we get a passing grade in our Christianity. Our, our grade is already passing in light of the cross. But God, may you find us to be those things because we believe that that is the best of all possible lives. To care for the hurting, to care for the poor, to be present with those who are lonely. This is the best of all possible lives because it is the life that you led. So may your life come alive in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.